Well, I'm really going to ask you to get your Bibles open, and I, I, I can't possibly say that often enough. You need to be in the Bible during the week. We're going to be in the Bible every time we preach, every time we teach. It is the living and active Word of God. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that's our text. And we're actually looking at one word, which we will be doing for the next five weeks as well. Um, we're going to be looking at patience. And while you're opening up your Bible, let me tell you that I love watermelon, and I'm sure a lot of you do too. We're kind of out of season for it, but I love watermelon. Our family, when we, when we get in watermelon season, I, I haven't really added it up, but I, I'm pretty sure we buy at least 20, 25 watermelons a year. We love them. Probably more. But if I have a choice, even between a bowl of watermelon cut up, is how my wife serves it, or a bowl of ice cream, listen, I'm always going melon. I just absolutely love the taste of watermelon. You might like it as well, and you might have experienced something that I experienced when I was a little kid. I'm the youngest of six kids, and so my older brothers and sisters, you know, there's just something evil inbred into the heart of an older sibling. It just is. Y'all know it. If you're an older sibling, which I'm not, you know you're evil at the core until Christ rescues you. <laughs> and so my brothers and my sisters would tell me, don't swallow the seeds. Now they've told you that. You've heard this, right? But then they would go on. If you swallow the seed, it's going to grow a big melon inside of you. and You're going to explode chunks everywhere. That's what they would tell me all the time. And if I accidentally, which I did occasionally, swallowed a seed, you know, even those little white ones that get in there, that they're soft, you don't, you don't even know you swallowed it till it's down, I would get these psychosomatic stomach pains, like something's growing inside of me. And that was what my brothers and my sisters did to me. I would get you know, like this vision of parts of my body blowing out 100 yards away. That's what they did to me. See, I told you they're evil. And if you're an older brother and sister, you're evil just like them. <laughs> but melons don't grow in stomachs. They grow in dirt. Where they can get the nutrients that they need. Now I want to take that to spiritual fruit. Because it's the same way. Spiritual fruit grows one way. Now you hear that? That's the first significant thing I'm telling you. The whole melon thing, that's forgettable. But this is not. Spiritual fruit grows one way. And it too needs nutrients. And the soil of human effort, listen, you know this by now, it's not enough. You cannot fabricate this fruit. You cannot manufacture this fruit by your own effort. The life-giving nutrients for spiritual fruit, they are provided by the Holy Spirit. And they come into our lives as we walk with Him. Jesus says it better than I ever could. John chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you could do nothing. So if you think of it as an orchard of grapes, Jesus is the vine. The Spirit of God is the life-giving sap that goes through that vine. He is bringing the life of Christ into every believer, and we are the branches on whom and through whom spiritual fruit is being produced. Now, it's very easy just to hold that metaphor in your mind. 
If you're going to grow fruit, you've got to abide in Christ. And when you abide in Christ, you're going to be walking with the Spirit, keeping in step with Him, being led by Him. And His life-giving power is going to come into your life and into my life. Now look again at what we've learned so far when we've looked at the first of these three virtues, these three fruit characteristics. We started with love. Look at verse 22, you'll see it. Love is the inner determination to seek the best for others, that God will overcome all sin, or rather, that, that uh, I got that completely wrong. It's the determination to seek the best in others, even if they're not seeking the best in you. Now, I want you to stop for a second, just pause, and I want in your mind's eye, the person's face, come to your, to your vision who is it that has been unloving toward you? Could be an aunt. Could be a sister-in-law. Could be a mother-in-law. Could be a child. It could be a parent. Could be an uncle. Could be a neighbor, a coworker, a boss, a teacher. Could be somebody you trusted, but they've hurt you in terrible ways. This is the power of this fruit. It displaces resentment. It displaces bitterness. Not always immediately. We're going to talk about that at the end. But over time, this fruit grows because you're abiding in Christ. The Spirit of God is sending the sap into that vine, through that vine, into the branches. You're producing fruit. Love is the determination. It's not the emotion. It's the choice to say, I'm going to show God's love to you, even if you've never shown it to me. But then we saw that joy, the second one, is the overflowing gladness rooted in deep trust that God's going to overcome all sin, all darkness. He's going to produce in you an enduring strength. So what is joy? It is deep, abiding, enduring gladness rooted in God. What is peace? It's that inner quietness we saw last week of trust and God's sovereignty and God's goodness. And it produces in you and it produces in me an unshakable confidence. You see, every one of these fruits are vertically embedded. They're embedded in God. The more you know God, the more you're going to grow in this fruit. Now these first three virtues, love, joy, peace, they're all vertical. They describe who God is. They describe that rootedness in God himself. And it displays itself toward God. Now I want you to look at me for a moment. All three of them, love, joy, peace, are established, they're rooted, and they're displayed toward God. Now all of a sudden Paul is going to give us the next few, and they're going to go horizontal. And here's the first one, patience. Now what does patience mean? I mean, you really need to know what it means if you're going to begin praying, Lord, produce this in greater measure in my life. You've heard the maxim, I'm sure, patience is a virtue which all admire but few attain. We should know, however, and this is actually a fun fact, I'd be writing this one down if I were you, I would definitely put this in the margin of your Bible. You really need to know this. This is critical what I'm about to tell you. There are two Greek words in the Bible, in the New Testament, for patience. Did you hear that? There's two. And they mean very different things. One of them, the first one, hupomone, 
means to remain under. It means to bear up under a weighty burden. It means to be steadfast in difficulty. Don't quit. You're in a trial. You endure to the end. That's the first one. That's what patience means. It means you can bear up under suffering and honor God and not give up, not let your faith be extinguished. This is all about what James chapter 1 is about, what he's teaching. But the patience here in chapter 5, verse 22, the one that Paul lists as a fruit of the Spirit, this is a different word. This is not that one. This is a compound Greek word. There's two words brought together, makros, thumos. And makros means long, it means distant, it means far off. Thumos means temper, passion, emotion. When you put them together, what you get is the God-given strength to hold your temper with another person. To have a long fuse. To be long-suffering toward others. To not easily be annoyed with people. You see, the first one, hupomane, that one means you bear up under suffering. You're in a trial. It is very difficult. Maybe it goes on for weeks, months. Listen, I know people in our church, their trials have been going years. And I'm coming along them, and I'm praying. Here's what I'm praying. God, give them patience. Don't let their faith be extinguished. Let them bear up under it. Be steadfast. But this patience, I'm praying for me and I'm praying for you. Let us not be easily annoyed by other people. So when that person cuts you off on the road, let your first and only response, let my first and only response be let it go. Show love. Show kindness. When that boss gives you a review that you really don't think is fair... Let your only response be patience, steadfastness in relationship, long-fused, holding your temper. You see, patience here, it's the ability to hold off anger. It's the determination to respond in a way that's best for that person. Now, I'm going to say that again because I'm really giving you a lot of definition. I'm going to give you more, actually. And some of this is going to go right out of your mind, and you got to hold it in there. This is what you... By the way, this is what you do when you listen to preaching. You've got to grab hold of the truth and constantly be holding it and saying, God, is this for me? So right now, let's just have a little bit of quietness, a little bit of silence. Are you an easily annoyed person? I really can answer that quickly if I just wore my Dallas Cowboys sweatshirt. Are you an easily annoyed person? Are you a long-suffering, relational person? Do you have a very long fuse before you blow? I'm asking you personally to answer that question. So right now, you ought to be deliberating with the Lord, asking God, Lord, I'm the worst judge of my own heart. So you tell me, God, am I patient? You see, patience is the ability to delay an emotional response until the mind can get in the driver's seat. See, if you're an emotionally reactive person, you're going to be low on patience. If you're a hypersensitive 
person, you're going to be low on patience. This is what the Spirit of God wants to manufacture in your life. It's the power of restraint. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in control of you. John Chrysostom from the 4th century was a theologian and a priest. He said it this way, It is the grace of those who could revenge themselves and do not. People who are slow to anger. Now the best person to illustrate this, by the way, is not me. And it really is not you. It is Jesus. I'm talking about the best person to illustrate this. He embodied this virtue. I mean, think for a moment as his family is accusing him of being insane and trying to physically remove him and take him back home, basically to shut him away from the public life. And yet he loved his family. They didn't even believe in him, yet he loved his family. Think of his disciples' unbelief. He's pouring his life into them for three years. Can you imagine Every, just about every moment of your life you're spending with these men and you're pouring yourself into them. And all the way to the very end, the evening before he was crucified, they still are struggling with, with unbelief. They're still arguing with who's the greatest. They're still annoying each other like little kids in the back of the seat of the truck or the van or the car on the way to vacation. It drives parents nuts. Yet Jesus showed patience. Or think of the Pharisees' accusations. Think of the chief priests. I mean, come on, imagine this for a moment. He's hanging on the cross. He cannot even inhale. He can inhale, but he can't exhale until he pulls up on those nail-pierced wrists. That's the only way you can exhale. You asphyxiate on the cross. It builds up fluids. You drown in your own fluid. So he's speaking seven times. He's in agony. And here's the chief priests that are going by him. And the Bible says they're wagging their fingers at him, mocking him. Like little kids do on the playground. And this is Jesus who created them, who's dying for them. who is providing the opportunity for life for them. This is patience and perfection. See, during all of this, Jesus showed an unquenchable kindness. Now, I want to take all of that. Now, look at me for a moment. This is really, really critically important. Try to grab, if you grab this, you really got this entire series down. Take all of what I just said about Jesus and his character And understand that the Spirit of God is taking that same character of Jesus. And the Spirit is pouring it into your life. He is manufacturing this into your life so that you love like Jesus. That you have joy like Jesus. That you have peace like Jesus. That's all vertical. That that's the relationship you've got with your Heavenly Father. And now he turns it horizontal. That you've got patience like Jesus. You see, the Spirit of God is the sap working through the vine who is Christ that we're abiding in. And he's bearing forth this fruit on the branches of our lives. This is what the Spirit of God's doing. He's making you and he's making me, fellow believers, like Christ. This is why it is unreasonable. I hope you're hearing this. It's unreasonable to pray for more patience if you're ignoring love, joy, and peace. You see, the 
The heart of Jesus was filled with love. He had an unquenchable kindness to people, anybody. And he was filled with overflowing gladness, and it provided him enduring strength. The, the joy of the Lord is our strength. His peace provided an inner quietness that produced an unshakable confidence in his Father. Listen, if you want patience with people, then you've got to be really praying, God, give my heart love, give me joy, give me peace. Because out of those flows patience. In fact, Paul begins his description of love this way in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Very first description. That's this word. So do you have a difficult person in your life? It's very likely. Can you hear this? And trust me on this. It's very likely that God has that person in your life to provide you the motivation to flee to the Spirit of God for grace-determined obedience. To learn to restrain your emotions. Learn to love people. I mean, do you not think that God could remove that person in your life? Do you not think that God is sovereign? That God brings people into our lives. God removes people from our lives. All of his sovereign purposes are at bay. And what he's doing with difficult people is he's manufacturing patience. You see, the Christian, and I hope that's all of us, the Christian has been set free by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've been given freedom from the penalty and the power of sin. And we're learning to live that freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what is that freedom? Well, look at chapter 5 again. Look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. And here we go. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve. Through love serve. Now, Paul knows that Tim Ackley and Cornerstone Christians, we're pretty dense. We don't get things very quickly. So he actually adds on a secondary definition to reiterate this, and he goes on. For the whole love is fulfilled in one word. It's love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here it is. Ready? Now look at me. If you put your faith in Jesus, he has set you free from the power of sin. Now listen, look at this. The power of sin is at its deepest cosmic rebellion against God and a hyper-commitment for your own agenda. It's a complete self-orientation. That's what sin is. He has set you free from that. He has set me free from that and swung the needle out away from us towards him and towards people. And the Spirit of God says this, that needle that God in Christ swung away from you, that needle is going to want to snap right back. And it will hundreds of times through the day, right? You know that, just as well as I know that. And the Spirit of God's job is to start turning that needle again, turning that needle again, turning that compass again, so that you're not the one in the center of your thinking. You're not the one in the center of your motivation. It's people around you. It's God. You're learning to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the aim of the freedom that the Spirit of God Helps us to live. But look at the very next verse. Verse 15 in Galatians 5. And this is what's happening in Galatians. The church of Galatia. Here's what it is. But if you bite and devour one another. Watch out that you are not consumed. 
by one another. See, this is the entire reason that Paul delineates the 15 works of the flesh and then the nine fruit of the Spirit. He's helping them understand, listen, you have no power in your own self to live this out. You've been set free by Christ, but you need the Spirit of God to help you love. And if you walk with him, he's, here's what he's going to do. He's going to fill you with love. He's going to fill you with joy. He's going to give you peace, and he's going to help you be patient. We all irritate each other, right? You have anybody that annoys you? We've got to have a long fuse and do right by God. And patience enables us. Here's what it does. It enables us to not immediately retaliate with an insult when we're similarly treated that way. Patience, here's how it looks. When you read a Facebook post that deeply bothers you, Patience tells you to wait until the Spirit of God gets your mind back in control. Your mind in the driver's seat. Letting the Spirit of God infuse peace. Then you respond in truth and grace. We often realize then that we misunderstood. When we do that, we realize we misunderstood the person to begin with. Or that maybe praying for the person, maybe that would be better than a sharp reply. Maybe some inward reflection as to why we're bothered about this Facebook post in the first place. See, it's often true that we often listen to reply persuasively. Rather than listen to understand, right? I mean, we all, we all tend to do this. Now, I've actually had people upset at me because I don't get involved in the Facebook stuff that goes on. There's such little value in this. I would rather call the person, which is what I do. I would rather call the person and say, hey, let's get together. Help me understand your position. And let me show you what God is showing me as well. And then we can discuss it. Very little love is being shown in tweeting back and forth in Instagrams and Facebooks. See, patience stops your finger from replying to an email that hurt you. Man, I tell you what, I am so thankful for God because there's times where I've gotten an email that has so bothered me, so angered me, and I have flown out i mean typed out furiously my wife will know that because i hit the keys harder my justified righteous holy reply and then all of a sudden my battery dies on my laptop before i can send it i'm so thankful when god does that because that was my flesh that was not the spirit of god we have a little rule on our board that we try to honor, and every one of us fails every once in a while, but you don't handle conflict through Facebook. You don't handle it through text. The only right way to handle it is face-to-face. But patience is that spirit-empowered ability to not retaliate, to stop from making snap judgments. So do you, do you lack patience? Do you struggle with delaying your response time and not returning evil for evil? Well, if you do, then the question that you've got to be asking, the question that I've been asking, how do we develop patience in our lives? And that's point number two, and that's the rest of this message. I'm going to give you four super practical ways to develop this. I hope you're taking notes. I hope you're trying to learn this. I hope you're going to grow in this. The first one is this. The very first and foundational thing that you and I have got to learn 
is to look up. Look at God's great patience with you. There is nothing more transformative than this. Before any of the other three that I'm going to give you, and by the way, I preached a sermon in James. You can find it on the web, and I gave you six practical ways to grow in patience. It's the same word. These are slightly different. There's lots of ways to grow. I'm just taking four of them. Patience is something that you see in perfection in God. In fact, Peter wrote this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. Here's our word. It's not the other one. It's not hupomane. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there's a, there's a wishfulness. There's a desire. God doesn't want anybody in hell. Listen, there's a horrible damning hyper-Calvinistic position that says that God chooses some that will be saved, and then he actively, gleefully, joyfully chooses some to go to hell. That's not true Calvinism. That's not even the Bible. God loves. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He would like everybody to repent. But haven't you ever wondered when seeing pure evil in somebody else, God, why don't you just wipe them off this planet? Why? Because he's perfectly patient. He returns good for evil. And that has the power to bring about good. Well, let me ask you, did you sin this last week? Can you identify a sin where you fell short of the glory of God, but you rebelled against him? And if you can identify that sin, can I ask you just very brazenly, very honestly, to answer this privately, was that the first time you ever committed that sin? And I'm pretty sure the answer is going to be, you know, that was about the thousandth, ten thousandth time. Aren't you glad for God's patience? Especially when you know that every single sin that you will ever commit, that I will ever commit, has what Cornelius Platinga said, a God-word force. In other words, every sin, even if it looks like it's just against a spouse or a parent or a child or a neighbor, listen, it is ultimately against God. Which is why David would pray against you, you only. If I sinned, he had adultery. He arranged her husband's murder. And yet he would say against you and you only because his sin against God dwarfed in comparison to sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. So every sin is God word. Every sin is against him. And aren't you so thankful that God does not return evil for evil? He has restraint. Or do you presume, Romans 2, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Why does he keep you alive? Why does he keep that evil person alive? That one that hurt you so terribly? It's because God wants more than you for that person to be saved. So if you're really going to learn to be patient, you begin praying for that person. You begin developing the mind that God has to be your mind as well. It begins with looking up and seeing God's patience. But number two, and this is very practical... Remember that fruit grows over a season. You know, we like the microwave. We like two-day shipping. I bet a lot of you would, would admit that it's annoying that it takes Amazon two whole days to get something to you. 
We like immediate weight loss. We like fast muscle gains. We'll take anything to make either of those happen. We don't like to wait for much of anything, and our frenetic, immediate gratification culture makes the slow process of spiritual change. Come on, be admitting this. It's almost unbearable. Will I ever change? We've all asked questions like this. God, why is it taking me so long to get over this struggle with anger? Why is it taking me so long to get through this struggle with doubt? Why is it taking so long to overcome these bad habits? I'm so bitter. I cover it up most of the time. Why is it taking so long to get over this? See, we all want immediate results. It could be truly discouraging, the pace of spiritual change. But let me give you some insight and hope. Take a grape, because that's what's in mind in John 15. Before there is a mature cluster of grapes, there are very, very unimpressive buckshot berries. Little tiny size of a pea, green little buckshot berries. And before there are these little buckshot berries, there are purple-white flower petals. And before there are purple-white flower petals, there are these tiny little green caps. And before you get those green caps on the vine and on the branches of it, you get these little tiny green buds. This is the process of a grape cluster growing, and it takes a season for it to happen, one stage at a time. So listen, it's not different in spiritual growth. I really don't know anybody that becomes spiritually mature overnight. It's not possible. Now, the Lord could disempower a bad habit overnight, and he often can do that immediately. But the process of growing up around that formerly bad habit into maturity, it takes time. It takes months and years and sometimes decades. So don't get discouraged at the pace of your maturity. Don't give up. And in the same way, exercise patience for the growth of other people. Listen, when other people take so long to get more mature, well, here comes your patience opportunity, which is really what 1 Thessalonians means. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Who's the all? The idle, the faint-hearted, the weak. That's the word patience that we're studying. That's the same fruit of the Spirit. You know, think about it a little bit differently. Ready? Until very, very recently, in almost the entire world, were farmers. This was an agrarian world until, really, the Industrial Revolution. And there was a pace in life significantly slower than our own. So the Galatians, they knew that fruit-bearing took time. And yes, there are times of fast growth where God is just going to manufacture quickly some of this fruit. But the ordinary experience of the normal Christian is slow growth. And the ordinary Christian is going to experience that their entire life. So be encouraged. You know why you could be encouraged? Because God's not like any other farmer. See, a farmer plants a seed, and honestly, they're just about out of options. There's not a whole lot more they can do. Farmers are so rich in faith. They've got to trust. They're completely out of control. 
But listen, God's never out of control. God already sees a harvest. Did you know that? That God already sees what harvest he's going to bring out of your life. He's not bound by time. He sees where you're struggling now. He sees perhaps patience is not very good. But he already sees how he's going to cultivate that. He already sees one day that you're going to be rich in love. You're going to be rich in joy. You're going to be rich in patience and kindness and gentleness. And some of these, to be honest, some of these will never come into the full harvest until eternity glory. That's what spiritual farming is all about. You continue to grow. You continue to not lose hope. You are being strengthened, Colossians says, with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Who's strengthening us? It's the sap of the spirit flowing through the vine of Christ out to the branches of the Christians so that fruit is being grown. There's an incredibly encouraging article on this that I put on my notes. You'll see it this week when the sermon goes up. It's from John Piper. I would really encourage you to read his really wonderful article on the slow growth of spiritual fruit. But let me get to the point number three, and we're not going to be too much longer. Get out of the game and get on the bench. The entire world puts that the other way. Nobody wants to sit on the bench. If I were to ask you, where do you feel closest to God for a lot of you? The answer, like it is with me, it's not going to be in church. Does that surprise you? I don't feel closest to God here. I absolutely love worshiping with my brothers and sisters. I love hearing the word of God preach, even if I'm not the one preaching it. But I don't feel closest to God here. I feel closest to God when I'm alone, usually in a hunting stand, praying. Out in God's creation. You know, not too long ago, one of the snow clippers that we got, Andy and I, it was a Monday, if you remember that clipper, about a month, three weeks ago, I think. It snowed, he had a snow day, we went out that evening, it was dark, and we lived really close to Forks Elementary School, so Andy and I walked up to the playground, he's at uh, the middle school now, but the year before he was at that, uh, the elementary school, and he wanted to show me the playground, so we're playing on the playground, going down these snowy, icy slides, and, and then he says, hey dad, look at that bench. He says, that's the buddy bench. So we went over and sat on the buddy bench. I said, Andy, what is the buddy bench? I've never even heard of this before. People pooled their money in. This is all around the nation. It's a buddy bench. You sit on that buddy bench, and that's your signal to everybody else. You want a friend to talk to. See, walking by the Spirit, listen, I hope you hear this. It means you're going to spend a lot of time on that buddy bench where you're asking the Spirit of God to come talk. And you're sharing your heart. And you're pouring it out, and you're listening to Him. Except by the time you get there to the buddy bench with the Spirit of God, you're always going to discover He beat you to it. And He's been waiting for you to get there, and He's been inviting you to get there. And you get on that bench, listen, in prayer. Do you hear me? You get on that bench in prayer. And by pursuing God through his word and by experiencing his love through the company of other Christians. But the deepest, most intimate time you will ever experience with God is prayer. It's where you're going to get your eyes back on the spirit. You know, 1950, 1933, this is cool. I was, I was a bowler growing up. It was my, actually my best sport. And it doesn't really say much because I was not that good. Austin Greco, Pastor Austin, yeah, he was a good bowler. 
Bill Knox, however, 1933, listen to this. He bowled in front of a crowd of spectators. He had a, they put a large screen just above the bowling lane, right beyond the mark where you have to stop when you're throwing the ball. He could not even see the pins. He couldn't see almost any of the lane. All he could see was a few feet in front of him. He put a mark on the lane, which by that point, lanes were not marked. They have little arrows on them now. He put a mark on the lane, and they invented spot bowling. And Bill Knox focused on that mark rather than the pins. And with, a, with hundreds of people around him, he bowled a perfect game of 300. True story, 1933. You know why he did that? You know how he did that? Because he just kept his eyes on the mark. Christian, that's what prayer does. Christian, it puts your eyes back on the mark. And the mark is the Spirit of God. It is Jesus Christ. It is not your problem. It is not the difficult person. It is the patience of God. That's the mark. And the Spirit of God says, I can help you love like that. I can help you return good for evil like Jesus did. Do you want that help? You're on your buddy bench. You say, yeah, Lord, I really need that help because I can't do it on my own. He says, let's go do it. And what he's going to tell you to do, start praying for that person. And then after a while, go to that person. Show some kindness. Drop the charges. Bury the hatchet. Forgive. That's what Jesus did. That's what your spirits, the Spirit of God is going to do on your buddy bench. The final one is this. Very practically, dress for success. Paul is so clear in this. Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Listen, there is a very deliberate process that you and I must learn to do every morning, and that is get dressed in our spiritual clothes. But I'm going to tell you, if you are an impatient person, you do not do this. If you are struggling with patience, you're struggling with a wardrobe change. You've got to put on the clothing that the Spirit of God tells you to put on. I want you to picture God's Spirit reaching into the wardrobe that Christ has provided you. It's filled with the character and the virtues of Christ. And he's handing them to you one by one as you dress for the day. So listen, this is what you do in the morning. All right, Spirit of God, what do you got for me to wear today? He's going to hand you compassion. What else you got for me? Because I can't go out with just compassion. I got a full day of mean people to live around. Now here's kindness. I want you to put that on. And you know what? I want you to get some humility on. Because if you don't, that arrow is going to be on you. Because you're not going to lie low to the ground. You're going to be exalting yourself. So put on a lot of overcoats of humility. And then I want you to put on some patience. Because I already know. I see what's coming today. And you've got some people that are going to really test you in every possible way. So you've got to get patience on and get ready for it. See, consciously, deliberately remembering that you're free from the penalty and the power of sin, and you're free to love. You've been set free by Christ's death and resurrection. You're being taught to live free by the Spirit of God. So we can put these on. These are the clothes of Christ. These are the, these are the virtues that Christ inhabited, inhabited his heart. And he, they're sitting in our wardrobe that you own. Did you understand that? You own a wardrobe with all of these clothes in it. We just don't remember to put them on. 
And the Spirit of God's job is to be our maid of honor in a wedding, is to be our best man in a wedding. That's to help us get ready for the great day. And the, the Spirit of God is saying, hey, come on, put this on. I know where your weaknesses are, and I know the test you're going to have today. You get off that buddy bench in the morning, you get off your knees, and you walk into the day that awaits you filled with difficult people who are suffering, who need to know your Savior. And when you live out the character of Christ, you got to listen, when you live out the character of Christ, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Heads are going to snap to you, and they're going to go through you and glorify Christ. They're going to look at you as... How do you live that way, working next to that difficult person? And you're going to have an opportunity to tell them the wardrobe that the Spirit of God dressed you in because Christ died for you. Friends, look deeply at the patience that God has for you. And don't be discouraged at the pace that his fruit grows in our lives. He knows what he's doing. He is the master farmer. So get out of the game. Get onto the bench where your head coach, the Spirit of God, can check in. Go over some things that you need to hear. And then finally, let him start handing to you what you need to be wearing throughout that day. And you're going to start bearing the full cluster of the fruit that is in this chapter. Amen.